So welcome to our final lesson of our possibilities possible. To review first, in lesson one, we introduced the problem of evil, the logical dilemma that says if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, then evil should not exist. We reviewed the nature of time and how it's not something that's created, but an attribute of existence that defines sequence and duration. In lesson two, I introduced open theism, the view that the future is partly open to possibilities and God is open to working with his creation to accomplish his will. We looked at a lot of passages that suggest that the future is not certain, but open to possibilities. And we discussed how the views of the future being exhaustively settled and that God is not always experiencing time were originally from Plato and other Greek philosophers and not taken from scripture. Augustine believed these ideas so strongly that he had them incorporated into church canon as truths. Last week, we reviewed the six theses of the warfare worldview theodicy. Love for created beings requires freedom. Freedom requires risk. Risk requires moral responsibility. Moral responsibility is proportionately balanced. Morally responsible freedom is irrevocable, and freedom is finite. We then discussed a brief overview of the Bible's witness to warfare theology. We talked about hostile waters, cosmic beasts, the rebel gods, Satan and his sphere of influence, and then Jesus' teaching on spiritual warfare. This week, let's examine some of the objections that some have made to open theism and the open view of the future. I'm going to go through the 10 that I've heard and read about the most often and then provide what I think to be an answer as to why these objections are invalid or explained. Every objection I've been able to find is either a misrepresentation of this view or a different interpretation of scripture. I've not found any philosophical, theological, or biblical arguments that disprove it. Other interpretations of individual biblical passages do exist, but I believe that when taking the Bible as a whole, along with everything else we've discussed, that the open view of the future, that some things are not exhaustively certain, is the most accurate. So, argument one. Open theism raises serious problems for inerrancy. James Rockford asks, quote, How can God make inerrant predictions of the future if he doesn't know the future certainly? End quote. God can and has determined some things about the future. God exhaustively knows all future possibilities, and through his infinite intelligence and power, he's able to make things happen. Remember the choose your own adventure books analogy we talked about in the previous lesson? God determines the structure of the story and how the story will go, regardless of which path someone may select. Even with a partly open future, God is still absolutely certain about the range of possibilities and what he will do as a response to each of them. Argument two, 
all of the verses used to support an open view of the future are just anthropomorphic. The term anthropomorphism comes from combining the Greek words anthropos, meaning human, and morphe, meaning form. It means giving human traits, emotions, or intentions to non-human objects or beings. All of our understanding of God is human understanding using human descriptions. A few examples. We say that God has a mind, or we speak of God's will, and how God hears our prayers. These are all anthropomorphic descriptions. If we don't use anthropomorphisms, we aren't able to say anything. Since we are part of creation, what we know of God is either through his direct revelation to us or through our relationship in his, with his creation. Like Romans 1 verse 20 explains, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, been made, so that people are without excuse. God is greater than anything in creation, but he uses different aspects of creation in order to deepen our relationship and our understanding of him. Some texts are obviously figurative, as it would be ridiculous if taken literally. For example, Deuteronomy 4, verse 34, God has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Or Hosea 2, verse 2, God being described as our husband. Some texts are also poetic in nature. For an example, Psalm 17, verse 8, God has protecting wings. However, there's nothing ridiculous or poetic about the way the Bible repeatedly speaks about God changing his mind, regretting decisions, or thinking and speaking about the future in terms of possibilities. Either way, however, all metaphors or anthropomorphisms about God are used to describe how God really is in a way that we understand. So even if the texts used to support an open view of the future are all anthropomorphisms and not true facts, they would still describe how God is and not the opposite of his nature or character. So argument three, God distinguishes himself from false gods on the basis of his foreknowledge. Don Stewart comments, quote, Denying God's knowledge of the future, as well as denying his absolute control over all things, is a dangerous step to make. This is especially the case since, there's, since this is one of the arguments he uses to distinguish himself from the so-called gods of the ancient world, end quote. And he references Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. So let's take a look at that passage. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. The context of this passage is God saying that he is alive and that he can do what he pleases, unlike some of their idols. We know this because of what God said just a few verses earlier in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 46. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. 
They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. God knows himself, his choices, and his will completely. He knows how he will make creation end as opposed to how he made everything begin at creation. There's no conflict at all with the open view. Furthermore, notice the clarifying statement at the end of verse 10. My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. God can and does determine what he will do. He may give this information to his prophets to either warn his people or to prove the trustworthiness and legitimacy of his prophets. Argument four. We judge false prophets based on their inability to predict the future. Deuteronomy 18.22. Again, let's look at the passage. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. As discussed in a previous lesson, Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 3 shows that sometimes false prophets are able to accurately predict the future, and God uses this as a test of his people's love. Here's the passage in case anyone missed it. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Argument five. The Bible routinely states that, the God, that God can accurately predict the future. I've compiled a list here of several scriptures that people quote in support of this argument. We'll look at all of them, but just to say this up front, again, God can and does determine some things about the future. The open view wholeheartedly believes and supports the idea that the future is partly closed and with events or circumstances that God has determined to occur. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that the future isn't also partly open to possibilities. In the first reference passage, Genesis 6.13, God declares what he is going to do. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Next is Genesis 15, verse 13. Similar to the one before, God is telling Abram that Israel will be held captive until God calls someone Moses, in this case, to bring them out. Then the Lord said to him, Abram, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. This passage doesn't make specific predictions about anything other than what God has decided what he is going to bring about. Argument 6. 
The next set of three synoptic gospel accounts of the same passage, God determined that he would die and be raised back to life in order to free mankind from the shackles of sin, which is death. I believe that in these scriptures, Jesus is telling his disciples what he is going to do to fulfill scripture and to accomplish humanity's atonement. First, Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Mark 8:31. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Luke 9:22, And he, Jesus, said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. <coughs> the next cited scripture is John 13, verses 21 through 27. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. So first, this passage has Jesus fulfilling scripture. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. God knows with perfect, exhaustive certainty all in the past and the present. Matthew 26 verses 14 through 16 tells us about Judas getting paid for the betrayal of Jesus, and then he waits for the right opportunity. Here's the passage. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Keep in mind that this is before the Last Supper, which is described beginning in the next verse of the chapter. So when Jesus says someone is going to betray him and basically points to Judas, Jesus isn't predicting the future. He isn't, he's using his complete knowledge of the past and the present to know what Judas is planning. Next we have Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I believe this verse refers to the time in the womb and not all of one's life as some suggest. The issue here is the verse uses hyperbole, which is common in Semitic poetry. Greg Boyd explains, quote, the point of this passage is to poetically express God's care for the psalmist from his conception, 
not resolve metaphysical disputes regarding the reality of the future, end quote. The Hebrew text doesn't include a subject to define or explain what is written in God's book. Some scholars and interpretations differ. Some have days of life, others have days in womb, or even body parts in womb. For example, the ESV, the English Standard Version, leans towards the time in the womb. They translate this, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The latest King James Version, called KJ21, says it was the body parts that was written in God's book. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuity were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. The point of the passage is the relationship that God has with us and how he knows us even while we're still in the womb before we are born. The final passage that's provided in this argument against open theism is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. This is where Jesus predicts Peter's denial. So first, Matthew 26, 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Mark 14.30 And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Luke 22.34 Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Then John 13.38 Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This one's a little different. Some believe that it may be that God chose to, took away, to take away Peter's free will in order to teach him a lesson. But this interpretation is not required. Sometimes by combining God's exhaustive knowledge about the past and his exhaustive knowledge about all future variables, a person's character makes them predictable. As we discussed last week, character becomes predictable over time. The longer we persist in a chosen path, it solidifies our nature and diminishes our possible choices in the future. Choices create habits, Habits create character, and character creates destiny. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So God, knowing Peter's character perfectly, could predict that under certain highly pressured circumstances that God could easily orchestrate, he would act the way that he did. Peter was prone to a general bravado and overreacting. Remember that Peter had just got finished chopping the ear off of the high priest, uh, the, uh, high priest slave. Additionally, Peter just made a typically proud claim, I will lay down my life for you, in John 13, 37, the previous verse. Peter, like almost all Jews at the time, believed that the Messiah would be a military leader and vanquish his enemies. It's easy to appear courageous around miracle-working Jesus, but then he became cowardly once Jesus was arrested. 
God lovingly used this knowledge to teach an important future pillar of the church an invaluable lesson about love and servant leadership. Three times Peter had his true character squeezed out of him. And then three times the resurrected Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? In John 21, 15 through 17. Peter was then told that he would die a martyr's death like Jesus. John 21, 18 and 19. So Peter's character changed, and he no longer saw leadership as strength and bravado, but about laying down one's life and feeding the Lord's sheep. From this moment on, Scripture reveals that Peter was different. He was molded to be the kind of person that God wanted him to be. Okay, does anybody have any, that's the first five arguments, may have any questions, comments, or anything at this point? So argument six, God's foreknowledge doesn't limit his own free will. William Craig asserts, quote, if knowing what he would freely do in any set of circumstances is consistent with God's freedom, it is hard to see why his knowing what we would freely do in any circumstances is inconsistent with our freedom, end quote. Again, God knows himself his choices, and his will completely. God knows every possible option we may choose in any given situation. He just doesn't know every option we will choose with absolute certainty. To understand this better, let's review the God's Book of Known Facts paradox. Let's say God decides to reveal to us everything that he knows to be true on June 9, 1977, and sends us a book from heaven on this date entitled God's Book of Known Facts. You read that you will cheat on your taxes on April 12, 2032. Now remember, this book was written back on June 9, 1977. Wouldn't you feel the truth that there's no more chance of changing your future than that you'd be able to have in changing your past? How can you believe that you have a choice about cheating on your taxes on April 12, 2032, if it was in God's book of known facts on, back on June 9, 1977? Freedom is the ability to choose between various possibilities. You are free to cheat on your taxes, or not, because it is possible for you to cheat on your taxes, or not. Even if we didn't read this book, if God has this definite foreknowledge, this definite knowledge about the future, and God cannot be wrong, then we don't have a choice and don't have genuine freedom. Argument 7. The open theism view doesn't square with scripture on prayer. James Rockford, quote, While Jesus prayed for his own desires to be fulfilled, he also affirmed God's will, not his own, Matthew 26, 39. He models this for us in the Lord's Prayer as well, your kingdom come, your will be done. Moreover, when we realize that our hearts are deceitful and wicked, 
we shouldn't want our agenda to be fulfilled, end quote. So let's look at the passage. Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he, Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If the future is already settled through either predetermination or foreknowledge, why would God the Son ask God the Father if something is possible? <clears throat> I feel the complete opposite on prayer. God wants to be in a relationship with us where we come to him with our desires as along with our praise and, and thanksgiving. In teaching his disciples and us how to pray, in Matthew 6, verse 10, Jesus prays, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. If God is in complete control over everything that happens, and therefore God's will is always done on earth, why does Jesus say that we should pray for it to be done? Classical theists claim that Prayer is simply aligning our wills to God's will. But what about intercessory prayers? We're told to pray for others. If God's will is already fixed and the future known, why pray for others? John Sanders wrote in response, quote, It is God's desire that we enter into a give-and-take relationship of love, and this is not accomplished by God's forcing his blueprint on us, end quote. I believe that God's willingness and desire to work with humanity by responding and making changes because of our prayers is another giant plus in the open theism column. If the future is 100% settled, then there's nothing that my prayers or the prayers of an entire congregation or even an entire nation can do to alter a determined outcome. Argument eight, open theism doesn't offer adequate comfort to believers. Andrew Wilson says, quote, if you are reformed, determinist, or Arminian, and you face a situation of intense suffering, you can be comforted with the truth that God knew this was going to happen, <laughs> and it has not caught him by surprise. If you are an open theist, you cannot say that. In fact, you will probably assume that he has only just found out just like you. Somehow, this is far less reassuring, end quote. Why would it bring someone comfort to think God already knew your suffering was going to happen before it happened, yet didn't stop it, especially for determinists, when that very same God is the one who supposedly wanted the suffering to happen in the first place? The more substantial comfort that open theism offers is that God did not want the suffering did not want the suffering for us and that our intuitions of injustices are correct this allows God to grieve with us open theism is the only theology that allows for such an empathetic God many things in life are truly ungodly and, and that reality is not the way God wants it to be. God suffers with us. 
what's more comforting than that? The infinitely intelligent God can anticipate every possible evil just as effectively as the traditional blueprint view says God can anticipate certainties. And he has a plan to capitalize on evil when it happens. In other words, he's able to get as much good out of it as possible. Argument 9. The open view seems to demean God's sovereignty. In all free will theologies, much of what happens in world history is the result of the decisions of free agents and not God's will. This is why the horrors of the world do not clearly reflect the beauty of God's character. Just because God doesn't get his way, this doesn't mean his sovereignty is demeaned. Most people mistakenly consider sovereignty a synonym with control. They allege that if God gives humans some control about the future, he loses sovereignty. Um, no. God is sovereign and still has power and dominion over creation despite his choice to release a measure of control to other free agents. A more accurate and praiseworthy way for God to rule or be sovereign over creation is through his divine love. God demonstrates divine power when he empowers others to make choices about entering into a loving relationship with him or not. God demonstrates divine power when he puts himself into a position where his heart can grieve because of the adultery of his beloved, like in Hosea 11. God demonstrates divine power when Christ came to earth and allowed himself to be crucified for our sins. This is what it means to have true power and authority. This ought to be the model by which we exercise power within the body of Christ. Luke 22, verse 26 says, The greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5-7, through 7, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I think God's sovereignty is exemplified and showcased in that his ruling power and authority remains even without complete control over everything that happens. Lastly, argument 10. Open theism is just a new fad in Christianity. Andrew Wilson, quote, Even the most sympathetic advocates of open theism admit that it is all but impossible to find in the first 18 centuries of the church's history. For those committed to historic orthodoxy, that is a massive problem, end quote. The term open theism was coined in 1980 by Richard Rice in his book, Openness of God to refer to the dual aspects of the viewpoint. First, the future is partly open and not exhaustively settled in advance through either God ordaining or foreknowing it. 
Second, God is open to working with his creation in order to accomplish his will. Mr. Wilson is correct in saying that you can't find references to open theism in Christian orthodoxy. However, historical references to the ideas of God being open to his creatures and the future being partly open goes way back even further uh, than when the open theism name was first used. I'll list a few examples here for reference. First, there are Jewish and Islamic varieties of this viewpoint that have existed from long before the time of Jesus. But as for Christian references to these beliefs, after Jesus' time, in 321, Chalcidius translated Plato's book Timaeus into Latin with a commentary advocating the open view. There are also several medieval proponents to open theism. Abraham Ibn Dad in the mid-12th century, Peter Ariel at the turn of the 14th century, Levi Ben Gerson, also known as Gersonides, in the early 14th century, and Peter de Rivo had some writings at the turn of the 16th century that all advocated an open theism view. What's interesting is that around 1600, it was noted in John Owen's book called The Display of Arminianism that Johannes Corvinus and other pupils of Arminius were actually open theists based on a lot of their writings that they had at the time. And finally, from 1727 through the present time, many theologians have written essays and books arguing the open theism viewpoints. This is as big as I could get it on the screen. I apologize. But this is a timeline graphic that shows all the people I've mentioned, as well as many others, that have all argued for the open view. Clearly, this view has existed throughout Christian orthodoxy and isn't just a new fad. If I can make this bigger, I would. I apologize. So again, any comments, questions, anything else before we continue? Okay, so the importance of waking up to the war, or things to keep in mind while being in a spiritual battle with the enemy. Seeing God's beauty. With all of the evil in the world and the casualties we witness in this battle for God, we need to keep the beauty of God and his character at the forefront of our minds. It's easy to lose sight of the beauty of the light when surrounded by so much darkness. Especially in wartime, we need to be imitators of God. We need to be enemy-loving, self-sacrificial, in a sharp contrast to the grotesque evil in the world. As Patrick Mead once said, when the world seems darker, shine brighter. Another importance of waking up to being in a spiritual war is the difference between resignation and revolt. Some ancient piety was stoicism that accepted what they couldn't change. But scripture calls to a us to have a piety of revolt, to fight evil and change the world for the better. There are two types of intercessional prayers for people hurting in this world. First, there's a prayer of resignation. Pray that we don't know or understand God's will, 
but we ask for peace through this time of suffering. Alternatively, we can pray the prayer of revolt. Pray that the individual is healed and for our desire for God and his angels to combat and remove anything that may be standing in the way. As stated previously, the Lord's Prayer, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, presupposes that God's will is not being done on the earth. As the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth, it is our responsibility to not only try to do God's will, but also to do our best to ensure God's will is done wherever we go. Warfare changes how you fundamentally live. Suppose a family want to take a vacation and escape all forms of conflict and decides to rent a cottage away from the hustle and bustle of the world on a beach in France and kick back and relax. Absolutely nothing wrong with this, right? What about if this beach was Normandy, France on June 5th, 1944? The next day they wake up and there's gunfire all around them, there's German forces on a hill, the Allied forces are storming the beach from boats. The Allied generals ask the family to use the cottage to help the wounded soldiers. This battle is a major turning point of World War II and the family needs to get involved and help. My point is, what's moral and right on June 5th became immoral and wrong on June 6th. Our actions are and should be different when we're in the middle of a war. Practical considerations of the warfare worldview theodicy and open theism. So why is all this important? <clears throat> Anything we can learn about God's nature or character is beneficial. Everyone has a preconceived notion of God's nature with regards to time and the future, even if they're not aware of what that nature is. In other words, even if we don't think about it often, we all have a fundamental belief of how time works and how God interacts with us. Naming or defining something doesn't change the thing's nature, but it brings attention to it and enables better understanding. The open view exalts God's wisdom and sovereignty. Let's say there are three chess champions. Every one of them is guaranteed to win for a different reason. Which one is the most worthy of praise and honor? Champion one is playing a program that they wrote. This champion is guaranteed to win because they're just going through the motions of a pre-written program that they wrote to ensure victory. Champion two has a printout of every possible move in advance. This champion is guaranteed to win because they have all the other players' moves and their responses to each of these moves already written down in advance. This champion is just going through the motions of what's already known to happen. Champion three anticipates every possible move and has a, pl a plan in place to counter them. This champion is guaranteed to win because they are so wise and intelligent that they have the ability to have a contingency plan 
ready and planned out for every possible move the opponent can make. Only the third champion uses intelligence and wisdom. Wisdom is taking information and having the problem-solving ability to be able to appropriately respond to any event or situation that arises from other sources of intelligent agents. The open view emphasizes God's genuine relationality. God is genuinely impacted by us. God and humanity both have an influence on one another. There's give and take. Relationships are real to the extent that both parties have an influence on one another. If only one party can, has influence, it's a monopoly and not a relationship. There must be reciprocity for a relationship to be authentic. We are part of a real-time, ebb-and-flow relationship with God because the world is constantly changing and circumstances and opportunities are opening and closing. The open view encourages humanity to walk with God on a daily basis and listen to the Spirit as He is moving us based on any and all certain situations. It squares with our experience. Whatever you believe, everyone lives like an open theist. Really, there's no other way to live. You, as you assume that most things aren't up for you to decide, but some are. For example, when taking a flight, we assume that airlines and money will still work as expected, maybe a little less these days, and the laws of gravity, gravity and aerodynamics still exist in the same way. These guaranteed facts free us up to make decisions on other things. We can choose our departure time, which seat we prefer, and our itinerary in terms of choosing between available layover locations and durations. If I deliberate between option A and option B, it presupposes that both are, in fact, options and it's up to me to decide. We assume that there are possibilities in front of us and we act on the assumption that it's up to us to resolve those possibilities. Like, I decided earlier today which shirt I wanted to wear. I assume that it is possible for me to wear the green shirt or the black shirt. And I assume that it's up to me to decide whether to wear the green shirt or the black shirt. I am acting on the belief that if that possibilities are real and that I am the one to resolve them. There's no other way for me to deliberate which shirt to wear in such a way that I demonstrate the belief that the shirt I end up wearing was decided before I ever put it on. I may believe that, but I can't act on that belief. The only belief that you can act on is that the future is partly open. Charles Pierce, the great American philosopher, writes, quote, a belief that you can't act on or that can't make a difference in how you act it out is devoid of meaning, end quote. So the belief that the future is exhaustively settled 
is not just mistaken, it's a meaningless belief. Whether or not you agree with that, one thing is certain. The belief that the future is exhaustively settled is unnatural. We all live differently, whether we affirm or deny it. We all live like open theists. We all act as though the future is partly open. We pray for God's protection, but we still lock the doors at night. The open view squares with contemporary science. Latest discoveries in quantum mechanics show that the world tends towards openness, spontaneity, and probabilities. A couple very quick examples. The path integral formula states that particles hop from one place to another with a certain probability. We're only able to calculate a possibility of a particle's location, velocity, and spin at any given time, which leads to what's called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It states that you can never simultaneously know the exact speed and the exact location of any object at any given time, because the act of measuring one changes the other. Done with science now. <laughs> the open view helps with the problem of evil. Why would God create people he knew would go to hell? Worse, why would God predestine people to go to hell? Why would God plead for people to accept him if he is absolutely certain that they won't respond and follow him? Your choices matter. Decisions we make have a real impact on the world. God truly cares about us and is affected by and responds to our thoughts and our actions. The open view motivates kingdom work. We really are the body of Christ, and God's kingdom on earth depends on us. Prayer does make a difference. We are significant. God needs us to play a role for his will for the world. <clears throat> Throughout this class, I've attempted to show that yes, I do believe that possibilities are possible. We've examined some philosophical, theological, and scriptural arguments that support the idea of the future being partially open and not completely settled. <laughs> Some have asked why I would choose such a controversial topic and one that doesn't even matter that much in the grand scheme of things to most people. Well, that's a fair question. The answer is a little personal with information I've never told anyone, including Amanda. I've always considered myself a Christian and I've never lost my faith. Sort of. When I was younger, I fell away a little, at least in terms of my thoughts and attendance. I never lost my faith of God. I've always believed that God exists and that Jesus is the way to be with him eternally. But looking back, I realized that I lost my faith in God. The reason was directly tied to this topic. Let me try to explain. I was always taught and always believed that God had complete foreknowledge about the future. 
anything and everything that was ever going to happen, God knew it ahead of time in advance and as fact. At various times throughout my teens and 20s, when I explained some of the things I was going through and begged for help, I was told by every type of authority, doctors, lawyers, friends, employers, my military leadership, even church ministers and elders, I hear you. I believe what you're telling me and I understand. I'm on your side, but my hands are tied and there's nothing I can do. What I heard was, you're not important enough and I don't love you enough to try to make any changes or even fight for you. Then I started thinking about my prayer life. This whole time I was also screaming out to God for help in prayer. I genuinely think that some evil spirit was started whispering to me, God is saying the same thing as everyone else. God's hands are tied too. That's why he's not answering. I started thinking that if God knew everything that would happen as fact, my prayers don't matter. There's no point in talking to him anymore because even if he does care, he can't do anything about it. So I stopped praying for years. I didn't think he was very active or interactive, I should say, with his creation anymore. Fast forward a few years. I met Amanda and started attending Eastside regularly, not because my faith had changed, but because I really loved her. She didn't grow up in the church and wasn't baptized, and I knew that I wanted my eventual family to go to church, and I loved her too much to let my negative feelings impact her eternal life. We attended regularly, and she became a strong believer and was baptized a few months before we got married. For me, I was still kind of going through the motions. I had faith, I loved God, and I wanted to follow him, but I didn't really like some of the things that I believed, and I felt powerless in my Christian walk. Then I heard some lessons on spiritual warfare and the open view of the future. I thought it was ridiculous, and for the first time in my life, probably in decades, I'm sorry, like first time in years, probably decades, I started studying and researching like crazy to disprove this silly idea. I read every occurrence I could find on both sides of the argument in scripture. I was even guilty of scholasticism in the truest sense. I tried to find scriptures to prove my beliefs rather than allowing scripture to be changed, to allow my beliefs to be changed by scripture. I didn't like what scripture was telling me, so then I started researching the Hebrew and the Greek to see if maybe there's a different interpretation. The more I learned, the more I realized that I was the one who had the crazy, silly ideas. I was reluctantly convinced that the open view was the accurate view. My faith was almost instantaneously changed. I deeply craved and developed a thirst for God's word. The more I studied, the more I realized that I had to go back and question everything. No longer did I want to just believe something just because someone told me it was true. I wanted to read scriptures and make my own choice about what I believed. I'd lost so much time already with my narrow and weak view of God that I didn't want to do it anymore. This was about 10 years ago. I am now convinced that God was even more heartbroken and frustrated than I was with what I was going through in my teens and 20s, more so because I blamed him for not doing anything about it and our relationship suffered. God never gave up on me. It took him years to get me to get my life back on track, but he still managed it. 
I had stopped praying, thinking it made no difference. Now I realize that, and listen to this, please. If you hear nothing else I say, please hear this. God is willing and able to answer prayers. They matter. I wholeheartedly believe that the future is not settled. God is working with us to make the future what he wants it to be. Sometimes he gets his way, other times he doesn't. But our choices matter, and our prayers matter. We are part of his plan to accomplish his will for creation. We're not spectators or mindless robots just following a pre-programmed set of instructions. The end of creation and God's win over evil is certain. Believers' eternal life in the new heaven and new earth as co-heirs with Christ is certain. But our path of how we get there is not. This is why I'm teaching this class on this topic when I'm an introvert and I cannot stand public speaking. I'm highly afraid of it. My life changed so much after discovering these truths. Others may be feeling the same way as I did. And my hope and prayer is that even one person develop a deeper, loving relationship with God as a result of maybe something they've heard in this class. So, you don't have to agree with me on this subject. It's not a salvation issue. Unity takes priority over being right in non-salvation matters. Let me repeat that. Unity takes priority over being right in non-salvation matters. I will continue to love you no matter what you believe on any of this, any, or your position on any of this. But when I look at the Bible and reality as a whole, the best way that I know how to interpret Scripture is through these views. And I hope your faith may be strengthened as well. So thank you for your time and attention this evening. Go ahead. I see one book in the Bible that especially supports the open view. That's the book of Esther. Because Esther was told by Mordecai, you can do this, you've been put in this position to do this thing to save your people. If you decide not to, God will present another alternative. So Mordecai was himself was was a believer, I feel, that there was more possibilities. Good point. And, and that that book, I think of all of them, any books I can think of, really supports the open view concept. Thank you for that. Anybody else have any? Go ahead. Both of Joe, a demonstration of this. I didn't know what Joe was going to do. He thought he did. He, he thought, you know, his character. He's not sure. Right. Any other comments, questions, thoughts? Okay. Well, thank you again for attending this class, and hope everyone has a great night. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.